Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interviewed Nate Went, a construction worker, foreman, project manager, equipment operator, and graphic designer turned activist and labor and community organizer. On this episode, we discuss working class history and class struggle. Solidarity forever. Thanks for having me. So tell me about uh, tell me about some of your ailments as a semi broken down working man uh, and working up, waking up in the morning and getting ready to do some construction. What's that like? Well, there have been twenty years, various types of construction from small crew to bigger crew, you know, commercial, residential, building ethanol plants or concrete, you know, so. When you wake up in the morning, you're never anywhere near close to 100%. You know, there's at least two or three things that hurt or, you know, a bruise your nerves and bum knee or something, you know, you just get used to it. What kind of hours are standard for a construction worker to put in in the summertime? Um, Oh, in the summertime, you know, when you got nice weather, you're really trying to get as much as you can done. And obviously, you know, crew size and location is going to play into this as well. But say from my experience, a lot of times, you know, even up to when I was running a crew or I had my own crew running for several years, I mean, I'd run voluntary Saturdays. You know, we may put 70 some hours in in a week. And at that point, you like payday, but. <laughs> you don't like any other day. Yeah, yeah. So um, the eight-hour workday, that was something, was that the turn of the 20th century? The late, um, yeah, I guess the late 1800s, early 1900s. You know, I, I we had d- done a pre-call, and you definitely, uh, I would call you a labor historian. You know a lot about so the labor history. It started in the late 1800s. You know, the fight for that started, um, you know, from like the 1820s to the 1860s, you had some labor federations and craft unions starting. And a craft union is a union that, you know, only represents one type of worker, you know, one job site. Um, So then when you got into, you know, say the 1870s and into the 1880s, that's, uh, you start having the first railroad union started and that's when you started having more of a push for 
some job site protection, safety protections, the eight hour work we or work day, which you brought up. Um, actually, I was one of the, the first big you know, nationwide strikes. You know, it was you know, May 1st, what was it, 1880, 1886 on May 1st, you know, across the nation, workers went in, and since they were fighting for eight hour work day, they worked their eight hours, and then when eight hours were up, they set their tools down and they walked out. Now, in Chicago, when this happened, you know, they were fought with, you know, the immediate response was the local PD coming in back to strike breakers. And unfortunately, a number of the striking workers ended up, you know, losing their lives or being injured as a result of this. So three days later, you know, they held a rally in the square, you know, the protest workers' rights, and also, obviously, the police brutality. And during this rally in the square, you know, an unknown person lights a bomb and throws it at the police. And if I remember right, 10 police ended up losing their lives because of this. And the police use it. And, you know, and the capitalists in Chicago use it as an excuse to round up all that labor agitators and anarchists. You know, they rounded up a group of anarchists. You know, I remember one wasn't even in a city. One was on the north end of the city. You know, they had little, little to no evidence because none of them were involved. And yet a number of them ended up hung. One, one person um, committed suicide after his sentence before he was hung. And I think only three of them ended up being acquitted, you know, ended up being a witch hunt out of it. And out of that, I call it the Hay Riot Massacre, but it's also called the Haymarket Hay Market Massacre. It's also called the Haymarket Riots. You know, that is what um, May 1st being the International Workers' Rights Day that is in honor of that struggle and the lives that were lost in Haymarket Square. That's in that was in Chicago. That was in Chicago. Yes, 1800s. It's 1881. And this this is uh, I'm actually reading here because I did a little bit of um, research prior to. I wish I had a little bit more time, but prior to our talk today, uh, 1892. Uh, the Homestead Strike, the Homestead Massacre. I'm from Western uh, Pennsylvania, and that hits close to home to me. And um, that's what kind of was saying, like, this is one of the most, um, I guess, modernized strikes, um, you know, with the steel workers uh, going against uh, Carnegie Steel and um, uh, Henry Clay Frick and the Pinkertons and the private security forces and the strike breakers. So this is all right around the same time. So it sounds like um, really the tensions between the capitalists and working class people um, really sort of taken off um, maybe a powder keg. And that's what I kind of read and talked to some people. A lot of people thought that the civil war was over wage slavery, which many people say is not that much different. I agree with, it's not that much different from chattel slavery other than it's temporary. Of course, the capitalists can't work you 24 hours a day, 365 days a week. 
you have to have time to sleep and eat and, and, and those things, unfortunately. So you can't be making money for the capitalists, uh, a hundred percent of the time, but that sounds like um, right around the time what eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, when tensions between workers and the industrialists, the capitalists, the robber barons really started to uh, come to a head. I, I don't know too much before that. You're yeah. maybe more of a labor historian. Am I oh, getting yeah. this right, though? That's right in that area. You know, in the eighteen seventies, you know, you had again. We we're talking about. Chicago, and I think you and I talked about this the other day when we were on the phone, you know, bringing it back, who was strike breaking at the time? We brought up the Pinkertons, and also, you know, the state militia would be at the beck and call, you know, the robber barons, you know, a few years before Haymarket, there's a, there, you know, there's a fort built just north of Chicago. The purpose of that fort being there is so that, you know, the army can be there to get down and break up labor unrest. And I think something we talked about the other day, you know, the uh, the history of policing in America is directly tied with labor unrest. In addition to, you know, as we know, the, uh, the first little militias were either slave patrols or around the Midwest in the plains, you know, indigenous patrols. Um, Just by but when we're talking about, you know, police, metropolitan police in the U.S., you know, that starts to happen, you know, in the mid to late 1800s. You know, this is something we talked about with Chicago the other day. You know, in 1877, the Chicago capitalist weighs $28,000 for the purpose of just buying ammunition and guns to have stored in the city to break strikes. And in this, they actually bought a Gatling gun as well. Not for war, not to say it was to defend something for labor strife, to use against striking workers. Um, you mentioned 1890s, you know, right around there. Like, say, the AFLs formed in the 1881, you know, United Mine Workers were formed uh, in 1890, and right around the turn of the century, you know, they're moving into West Virginia, starting to organize in the mines, you know, right after 1900. 1905, the IWWs integrated. So, a lot happening in the late 1800s, early 1900s when it comes to labor. I also was reading here that um, in the homestead strike, you know, getting um, immigrants in, involved in, in the striking and, and trying to make it, you know, like a class struggle. There has to be class consciousness, you know, and I, and I think that's part of what they try to do is to try to make it about, um, I, I don't know, you know, um, greedy, whatever, greedy, greedy robber barons or, you know, workers that want too much. Um, but I think. Uh, what they don't want is to us to use our political power to come together and and um, you know win win rights and win benefits and win better pay. Like I think part of uh, like that's one thing we're not really allowed to talk about in um, in capitalist society is like there are class differences. You know, there's really rich people. I'm not talking about people that you know live on the block, but 
down from, you know, maybe our neighborhoods in a nicer part of town or whatever, but like people that are in control of these multi-billion dollar transnational corporations that have more money than some small countries and maybe even medium-sized countries now. Um, and the fact that it seems like um, on the right, they love the violence. Um, I was just writing down Sacco and Vanzetti. They were anarchists that were, um, I think, uh, I guess criminally, I, I guess, I guess they were wrongfully, I think it came out, whatever. Um, I think that, I think they were acquitted, uh, post death. Um, and for, I guess a murder that didn't seem like they took part in and, and they were anarchists too. And, um, you know, sometimes the right, they love, they love violence. They love when leftist and um, resistance movements erupt in violence. And some of the sometimes those are provocateurs that, you know, like threw the bomb or whatever. It probably wasn't a leftist, certainly not leftist, uh, like, you know, we, the things that you and I believe in, it sounds like, and we, have, and we what we have in common. But it could be provocateurs on the right to make it look bad, or it could be someone that, you know, just had misdirected anger. But what the right loves is at these protests, you know, whether it's George Floyd or wherever, breaking windows, setting fires, shooting, you know, uh, at whatever people or cops or anything, just violence in general, they use that as a an excuse to use violence against it and to break it up and to, um, you know, and, and to also make the leftist movements look bad. Like, oh, look at these people burning down city streets and, you know, shooting cops and shooting innocent civilians. And a lot of times, again, that's provocateurs and maybe even people on the right, and they, they use it, you know. I think the best method to get change is to have a united front, solidarity, but also peaceful, you know. I think when things, when these movements erupt in violence, it's not because of the left, usually it'll be because of, it'll be because of the security forces and the police. Well, it's definitely one of their tactics. I want to bring it back. You mentioned a couple things here, you know, one turn of the century, um, I mean, just straight up, the American populace had a lot more class consciousness, say, early 1900s than we do now. Absolutely. Um, you know, all these workers, they saw their fellow workers as fellow workers, as fellow men, you know, and they saw themselves as part of that. They didn't see themselves as temporarily displaced billionaires. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like it's just a case nowadays. Um, the other thing, if you give the capitalist, you know, if you give, you know, the the factory owner anything as far as division, you know, any anything they can put a wedge in, they're gonna take it. And in one of the major flaws in the late 1800s and a lot of labor organizing was that it was white labor organizing and they were strictly just the white workers and you immediately handicapped yourself because you know you try to do anything collective action you know you're cutting a segment out you're saying well we want to Collective action for us, but not for them. Well, what's the first thing the boss does? You know, he buses in, or at the time, train load, train cars in, immigrant workers. That's the first thing they do. You gave them an opening. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that was one of the big things. You know, the UMW and uh, the IWW went in and integrated in 1905. 
you know, they were big sticklers on that. Like we organize everybody. Working class is working class. Yeah. So, you know, when the mine owners brought in, you know, a train load of black workers, white workers went right over there and started organizing. Um, and then, you know, they came one after the other, like, like I said, if you're going to show any bigotry, you're going to give them any division, like the capitalist class, the bosses are going to come in there. So, you know, you're like, oh, well, we're, we're okay with the black workers, but we don't like Puerto Rican workers. Well, that's, what do you think they're going to do? Yeah. They could bring in a Puerto Rican worker. Oh, we don't want women to work here. They could bring in a women worker. Um. You know, you're really shooting yourself in the foot. And there was a lot of that going on in the late 1800s, you know, into the early 1900s. Unfortunately. And we had talked about Chicago. I just remembered uh, as you were talking, I remember the book, The Jungle, Upton Sinclair. I guess it was to, con to expose corruption, to write about wage slavery, and then to just discuss the discussion just talk about and discuss the nasty, disgusting conditions, I guess, going on in the Chicago um, stockyards and the meat market and all that kind of stuff. Um, just the, and then I think transitioning to modern times, I believe I just read a couple of weeks ago that they busted, I forget what the name of the company, I'd love to mention them, but wasn't it like something like six, uh, six under, under the age workers working nights at some meat packing plant. I mean, it's been a hundred years since the eight-hour workday. It's been over a hundred years since the eight-hour workday. Right back to throwing kids in the yeah. factories. Yeah, right back. So with all the disgusting, with the gains in productivity and technology and automation, I think it's way past time to you know to decrease the workday, especially with the environmental crisis. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that can do their jobs at home. I think there's a lot of people, there's so much wasted time in capitalist society on just useless paperwork and industries that are probably not needed. Uh, like um, Useless buildings that aren't needed. There's a lot of, you know, landlords that own business property, you know, these skyscrapers that are just rented out and, to yeah, businesses. Could easily and be converted to housing, too. They got too. really nervous during the pandemic. When everybody's working from home, it becomes obvious that that, you know, that skyscraper, um, you know, office rental is useless overhead. Yeah. It's really not needed. And, like and you I, said, it could be converted to apartments, which is much more needed. And there's hundreds of thousands of homeless people, um, you know, houses people, however you want to say it. In America, it's hard to put down a number because, I mean, that number can change, you know, week to week, month to month, all that stuff. But it seems to be getting worse. And, and, like, I used to live in Baltimore. In that city alone, there was, like, tens of thousands of homeless people. But, like, something like 100,000 um, vacant homes and dilapidated homes that, you know, maybe a couple of weeks of hard work could be converted to housing for the you know, for, for desperate people and vulnerable people. Uh, and this, there's more uh, vacant homes in, in America and, and, and at a time when we're building and commercializing and suburbanizing, you know, and it's making our footprint expand when and, and decreasing the biodiversity. We're in a massive extinction event right now. Insect levels are dropping. 
Uh, of course, when we're in our cars and, and spread out, we have no public transportation uh, to make these roads. That's a that's a uh, oil byproduct, um, and it's also a social engineering project. Um, it was you know the, the highway system that was built under the guise of defense after World War II to make our economy an oil-based economy. But there's so many things we could be doing to kind of counter the the environmental crisis. But yeah, I think in, in general, like. All this technology and all these productivity gains, and yet the life of workers has only been getting worse. We're making, we're working more hours, mandatory overtime, like you were saying in the summer. I mean, seventy-hour work weeks for construction—that sounds about the norm, you know. Uh, at a time when you know we should be trying to decrease our footprint, when we should be trying to you know travel less in cars, when we should be trying to um, terraform the planet and change the energy grid for renewable resources. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I don't think that, um, like, I, like electric cars, for example, like, okay, it's great, but, like, how are these electric cars going to be powered? Are we using fossil fuels to, uh, to power them? You know, it's, it's like these are, these are big, like, just these are big problems that, you know, uh, like capitalism in, well, in general. Still, they want to solve it with a symptom. They, 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 the they electric wanna, car yeah, is good, exactly. but the infrastructure yeah. to make it run is more important. The, the, yeah, the problem um, you know, green is energy system. is good, but you also have to address the fact that the majority of the electrical grid is outdated yeah. or you yeah. run on burning coal. Yeah. You know, it, it's always something where, you know, the government and corporations will tell you that you should go. You need to sort your bottles and cans. Yeah. You need to use a paper straw <laughs> or you need to use a metal straw or That's whatnot right. when really your impact to this scenario is nothing. Yeah, the people who can actually make a change in this, if we want to talk about the, the big old plastic island of bottles in the Pacific garbage yeah. patch, yeah. like who could actually make a drop in the bucket as far as plastic production, go talk to Coca-Cola. They're number one. That's the number one polluter. They're the one that could do something about it. So when we're talking about like, oh, people need to, you know, the regular commuter, the working class individual, which, I mean, first of all, you're trying to tell them that they need to take their old car they're trying to keep running and they just need to ditch that and somehow afford a brand new electric. Right. Uh, which, you know, that's a whole nother issue or, you know, just expecting them to afford that. But. Again, you're asking, you're putting it on the consumer, the working class, instead of, you know, the people who can actually do something about it, the people who have the resources or people who are actually affecting the scenario. It doesn't matter if I cut down my carbon imprint or if I stop using, you know, such and such amount of oil and vehicles and gasoline. Like that's that's not going to make a difference. What is going to make a difference would be changing the habits, you know, or BP, Exxon, or whatnot, yeah. and not just you know this BS stuff where, you know, we we're going to tax them, you know, for how much they're outputting, but then they get to use loopholes and yeah. this that to write it off so they can claim they're being, you know, more energy efficient or cleaner than they really are. Or just you know, at the it. end of the day, it's it's also not an either or thing. This isn't about replacing one technology with another 
Like if you're then, you're going to be in the same boat at some point where you're trying to run everything on one technology when, you know, there are various different pieces of equipment or pieces of transportation may make sense to use completely different technologies for these at a bare minimum, just to have a bit of diversity. So you're not bottlenecking yourself. We, we were talking on the, on the pre-call, weren't you saying about the electric motor and it's, it, it, uh, it's, it's much older than the combustion engine. It is and, older than, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we the electrical engine is older. Um, battery tech, you know, has been a longer haul, you know, smaller, um, incremental changes there. You know, even like lithium ion batteries that we use nowadays, uh, if I remember right there, 80s technology, um, you know, got about to the form factor we're using now in the late 90s, early 2000s. Technology really hasn't changed much since then. It's certainly not, you know, lithium ion is good for small little bundles like we use in phone and tech and whatnot. It is, you know, the wrong use case to, you know, throw however many thousand of them together in a big battery tray under a car. You know, that's not the correct <laughs> usage. But, you know, I guess there, it all boils down to there hasn't been, you know, there hasn't been a for-profit motive for that. It takes a lot less money to continue using, you know, the technology and the innovations that you're already running with. Um, so anytime there's something new or you're trying to make an advancement, you know, research and development is going to take failing several times before you succeed. You know, it's going to take a budget that for profit motives just isn't willing or able to handle. Yeah, I like to quote uh, Rosa, I think it was Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, no, I think it was Emma Goldman, actually. I'm sorry. Rosa Luxemburg said some great stuff, too. But Emma Goldman, I think she said, uh, uh, if voting could change anything, it would already be illegal. Um, so we're probably not going to vote our way out of this. Uh, asking the king to be more benevolent. The uh, illusion is- of change is one hell of a drug, I <laughs> usually like to say. Okay. I like that. But I like, we're... we're um, you know, we're probably not going to vote our way out of this. You know, we're not going to get give a facelift to capitalism and save the planet. Like we need, we need drastic changes. Um, you know, we're not just going to give uh, a facelift and you know everything's going to be okay. Uh, I think the system is the problem. And again, it, it could go back to like you know the king. We could ask the king to be more benevolent, um, or maybe we could just overthrow the king. You know, and put a new system of government in place. Uh, and the way I see it, like, I don't think feudalism is all that much different. Frankly, I don't think communism, at least in the Soviet Union, is much different than capitalism, other than power was in the in the, in the the hands of the commissar class and a class of very powerful bureaucrats. Uh, in, in a capitalist society, power is in the, the ownership class of the capitalists who also essentially own or, you know, influence the government as well as the economic system, which is the corporations. But in terms of, like, feudalism, today's 
kings and queens are, you know, corporate executives. So we could ask these corporate executives to be more benevolent, you know, to, to pollute a little bit less and to maybe increase wages for workers just a little bit. So maybe that they just uh, keep up with inflation, you know, but a better alternative might be for workers to own and control the means of production. Uh, and I really like um, co-ops and more democratically organized um, workplaces. What do you, what do you think about, you know, co-ops and, you know, workers owning and controlling the means of production. I think unions are great and they're a good start, but the long run, I'm looking for more direct participation, ownership, and, um, you know, decision-making for working class people. Well, there's a lot to unpack there and start off um, the unions. Hold on. Okay. We're good. It's just started. Go ahead. When it comes to both unions and co-ops, you know, they're both a form of collective action and collective action has historically been, you know, very effective. And since it's been effective, you know, there have been, you could say either various campaigns or a long running campaign since 1890s, at least, you know, usually called the Red Scare, you know, to shut them down whether it be the IWW getting an anarchist getting shut down in the late 1900s, early 20s, and into World War One, or immediately, you know, following World War Two, when you really went after, um, you really went after your radical organizers, your anarchists, your communists, your socialists, and really you know, drum them out of the labor movement as this, you know, big middle class was growing in the 50s that, you know, to be fair, you know, it was really a white middle class. Um, but as this was growing, you know, the actual militant organizers and your more leftist political ideologies are being weeded out. And you know, what you have left is just is inefficient. You know, it ends up in a business union, top down, you know, organization, you know, where there's a hierarchy with a position or a group of positions between the workers. And, you know, it's and what's supposed to be working for them. Um, so that being said. I say all that, I say, you know, unions definitely aren't a monolith and, you know, co-ops aren't either. You know, anything we create, you know, can be distorted or corrupted. So we need to be vigilant to stay on it, you know. So just because somebody has a union doesn't mean, you know, their union is being effective or is doing enough. You know, we may need to get some youth, a youth element in there and reform that thing so it does a better job of serving the interests of the workers. Now, you mentioned co-ops and, you know, in, in a bubble, I love, or excuse me, in a vacuum, Emotong going for me. <laughs> in a vacuum, you know, love, you know, the means of production being put directly in the hands of the workers. Um, when we're talking about in the U.S., unfortunately, um, 
it depends, you know, it depends on where when you're talking about co-ops, where you're going to try to start it in what, you know, what area or business, what type of workforce, because unfortunately, um, without any protections or regulations in place, the better that co-op does for its, you know, worker owners directly hurts its competition with, you know, the factory down the street, which is just a capitalist run, you know, organization. So they can just keep shitting on their workers. They ain't got to worry about it. Um, so it's kind of like, but you were saying it's, it's, it's an uphill battle. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the co-op is under siege. No question. So there are certain areas, um, you know, like say we have a consumer co-op on the main street where I'm at. You know, where all the uh, all the consumers are a co-owner of that, and then that's a like a farmers market. Um, so just like there are various types of unions, there are also, you know, various types of co-ops as well. I, so I read a lot of Chomsky, a lot of areas I want to get into. My favorite philosopher and author is Chomsky. I got a ton of his books, Noam Chomsky. He talks about this a lot. I've been sending him a couple emails. I want to get on this podcast at some point. I don't know if he'll ever respond back to me, but it would be great. But you had mentioned like a militant um, – a militant, you know, kind of organization and a militant uh, worker-led movement. I'm all for peaceful revolution, nonviolence, that sort of thing. Um, but what do you think militant means, uh, you know, from the – obviously we're fighting back and it's a very violent and uphill battle. What, to, to you, what does militant mean? Because Chomsky is also wow. a peace activist. Is has said, you know, I think that's a benefit to the worker movement. A militant, uh, maybe organized, disciplined – uh, counteroffensive to the capitalist class. Well, when I say militant, when it comes to, you know, labor and community organizing, you know, we're talking about, you know, especially in community, you're talking about community defense. Um, when it comes to labor, you're talking about a lot of, a lot of the attitude and, you know, how do I want to? It definitely is a lot. Okay, it's a lot in your attitude, not only in your organizing, but in your day-to-day -day activities. You know, are we going about this? You know, in a laid-back, you know, take things as they come to us, or are we saying, no, this is the stuff in the workplace. These conditions need to change, so we need to find a plan to do this and we need to go after it and we need to stick to it. And then, hey, if it doesn't work, because unfortunately, a lot of battles, you know, when we're talking about in a labor market, a lot of times you lose or you don't get as much ground as you want this time. And you have to go back to the drawing board and go, OK, I have to analyze you know, what were the conditions, you know, that we were in? How did we end up in the outcome we're at? You know, so I can learn and grow and come back and get the ground we need next time. Yeah, if, if workers so gave up. Keep going. Keep going. Constant pressure. Constantly yeah. be moving and making progress. If, if we, if workers gave up every time 
we lost or every time we didn't get uh, things to go our way completely, we it would have never got off the ground. It's always an no, because every battle, all you know, the boss, the capitalists, they have all the resources. You know, everything's always uphill. You know, let's say, you know, you filed an unfair labor practice against your boss. It's a really obvious one. You know, they really obviously broke the law. Well, that means we're going to court now. So, yeah, it's obvious they broke the law, but this is going to take a while to sort out. And the boss has got a little bit more money for lawyers in court, you know, than you do. And let's just pretend that's the only uphill battle. Let's pretend that the courts aren't stocked with judges who are sympathetic to capitalists and the ownership class. Let's assume that it's a 50-50. Well, not only that, labor law, you know, they they have lobbyists that go in there and push for labor law to get weakened and for new, worse laws to go in, for regulations to be taken off. Um, the national governing body that governs labor law and labor rights violations, the NLRB, they are horribly understaffed and they are horribly underfunded. And this is not an accident because they are the people that workers are supposed to go to in the federal government to get some help. I'm coming from uh, Texas. That's where we're broadcasting. But uh, a month back or so, I mean, it's a hot summer. Uh, every day is 100 degrees. They at least took away I- state state rights for mandatory water breaks. That's right. State rights for That is insane in the middle of summer when you, got, you all the time hear about people just dropping dead from heat stroke. Like, it's no joke. Yeah. You know, when I was out running crews, I all the time had a cooler with, you know, your Powerade and your Gatorade and then another cooler with some ice cold water, you know, to Powerade and Gatorade to get the potassium, the salt back in you that you're sweating out. But that was a constant thing on the job site was making sure that everybody was hydrated and being aware, you know, if you saw a sign from somebody, you know, to get them, pull them aside, you know, before it developed into heat exhaustion or heat stroke. That's what they want us to do, though. I think they want to break up that solidarity that we're in this together, you know. They want to break up, you know. What do you think about um, just generally wage slavery or a society, you know, that functions around what you can get on the labor market? You know, they want to do away with, you know, labor rights and make them as little as possible, uh, deregulation, all that kind of stuff. That's what you hear from the right. What do you think about... um, just a society generally that, you know, wants to break down the welfare system and to break down the, um, you know, the, I guess, the safety nets in society, um, like Social Security and, and Medicare, maybe the only two functioning systems that we have in, in, in terms of social programs in the government. I don't and, think it's so much, you know, the society wants to. There are certain elements, oh, obviously, no. the people, no, it's the not people who would benefit. Right. And then, of course, they tell their, you know, corporate media to pass down the message right. that the 5 to 10% of the U.S. budget every year that goes to health care or 
Medicaid or Social Security is the problem. Five to 10% of the federal budget. That that is, is the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> not the entirety of the budget, just a little bit. And it's not an accident, you know, that they call it entitlements. You know, like it's something you're asking for, not something, you know, something that was drawn out of a weekly or biweekly paycheck every day of your life. You paid into this. That's that's the funny thing, too. Like the capitalists are always hell bent and laser like focused on the next quarter and the next quarterly profits. But uh, for some reason, Social Security, which is well-funded for the next 70 years or whatever, all of a sudden they're concerned with, uh, we have to do something about Social Security because in 70 years there might be a funding problem. And it's just absolutely ludicrous. And, of course, it's not the, uh, the biggest issue. But that's, that's where I go to what, what the capitalists want and Ayn Rand and the right, not society, but the right. And that's who we're always fighting this battle against uh, and not necessarily, I mean, the the Democrats, I wouldn't necessarily call them the left. They're a capitalist party. They're just maybe a slightly more, in some areas, a little bit more humane uh, than the Republican parties, but not too much difference from minuscule. But just wage slavery in general, like whatever you get, like freedom is a commodity in the United States. And if you have a lot of money, you can buy a lot of freedom. And what they want is an army of wage slaves who are laboring endlessly um, on the verge of poverty, because that's the only way they can maximize profits, for the subsistence to get by so that we don't have, like, universal basic income or, um, you know, programs that benefit unemployed workers. And so that we have to manufacture some uh, level of unemployment. We don't want zero employment. It has to be somewhere between, what, 5 and 10% or something like that, whatever the economics is. It's a part is. of the system. It's part it's of the system. Required. That's right. That's um, right. It is leverage against the leverage. workers so that you can always say, oh, oh, you, you don't like this? You, you don't, you're not being treated fairly enough at this job? Well, you could go somewhere else and there's somebody down at the corner or at the unemployment office who'd love to take your spot. Like capitalism will never solve unemployment because they would give up that leverage. It doesn't want to. <laughs> it doesn't want to. There always has to be uh, a certain percentage of people unemployed because, yeah, we have to, the, the capitalists have to manufacture scarcity uh, because, again, like you were saying, leverage. How about the labor history? I was just um, Googling some stuff as you were talking. You're so knowledgeable about the history of labor. I just Googled. I remember um, a big West Virginia strike. And the first thing that came up was the Battle of Blair Mountain, 1921. Uh, the first time in American history that a military plane has been used in surveillance and large-scale confrontations. And they it looks like the Air Force also dropped bomb on people. Yeah. Nuts. Do you know the, the labor history and the violence and compare it to, like, Europe and other parts of the world? Um I'm kind of ch taking some things I've read on this, but um, is it fr from your experience? Is is the violence uh, and the and the labor struggle unique to American labor history, or can you find um, some um, examples of a lot of violence against workers in, in other countries? Direct violence, like dropping bombs on them, like the the, the West Virginia coal miners. Well, off the top of my head, I can't recall. You know, specifically another plane bombing um but you know the uh the cap 
but this class will always do whatever it can get away with. You know, so until there is a certain amount of pushback, you know, against tactics, you know, that's what they're going to do. You know, violence was the go to until enough of the working class got together and said, you know, things need to change. Um, and now we're talking about, you know, running into the Great Depression there. Um, you know, people act like the New Deal was handed down, you know, from FDR uh, bullshit. No, no, no. You know, we we had record amounts of unemployment. We had about 40 to 50 million people coming together between your unemployed, between your trade unions, and you had, um, you had a, it was a, you had a communist party and a socialist party. You had political parties, the unemployed, you had trade unions all come together and all amassed and showed, you know, their collective power and said, and that said, you know, we could get eight hour work week or eight hour work day. We're going to get to weekends. We're going to get some child labor laws. You know, cause this shit's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's all about leverage. And we also want to put everything into context of the time, you know, it's right after there was, you know, the revolution over in, over in the USSR. Um, so that's good. So while we had labor unrest in the US, you know, you're constantly going, oh shit, what do I have over here? Like, so the point being, like, you, we had to turn up the heat to the point where we got the concessions that we got in the New Deal. Like, that was all pushed from the people, politically from further left. And the Democratic Party came in and co-opted, you know, the New Deal and did what they do. They come in and co-opted and, you know, take some of it and they go, oh, this stuff's too extreme, we'll take that out. You know, and then act like it was all their idea after the fact. Yeah, the New Deal was very much concessions because at the time the capitalist class was worried that if they didn't give up what we were asking for, we were going to come take the whole deal. And that's the only reason they gave up what they did. And they have been clawing to take it back ever Ever since. since. Oh, yeah. It wasn't know, a... We got union growth from the New Deal up until about the 50s when we had 30%, you know, union density. And then since then, it's all been downhill, especially once we got to the 80s and Reagan got in there and then the union busting was really hammering, you know, all praise to corporate America and Wall Street. I think non-federal workers, I think it's like less than 10%, right? 7% was the last number I saw. Yes. While we are in an unprecedented, you know, upsurge right now in organizing, um, the amount of new non-union jobs are being created is still more than the amount of union jobs that were created. That's the gig economy. We haven't eclipsed it yet. Yeah, um, Not, no I believe the majority of uh, new jobs created, you know, in the past three years have been gig economy, 
um, independent contractor work. No benefits. And I love that because there's no worker protection, no None. benefits, no health care. No benefits, no security, no stability. You don't know yeah. if you're going to have a paycheck tomorrow. You know, and obviously if you're doing deliveries, Uber or whatever, you know, it's wear and tear on your car. They say that, you know, your your wages factored in, but that's absurd. Um, I, they I saw... do factories this way, too. You know, there are factories where the factory will go to a temp agency to hire the workers and then there'll be a worker who has worked in a factory like six to ten years and not even been an employee of that factory so he's not eligible for any sort of raise any sort of promotion he's a temp worker but he's been there six to ten years you know and if something happens accident on the job site the factory goes well you're not my employee you work for the temp agency and the temp agency goes well, you weren't here on our property. You were at the factory. We loaned you out. And it's insane the amount of crap they get away with. No retirement, sick days, PTO, none of that. How about, so how about like labor? So I was looking up some of this before our talk today, uh, like international labor rights. Um, and how is it enforced? So for example, when like, Reagan, I think he uh, broke up the illegally broke up the airplane pilot strike right in the 1980s. So when a president or yeah, and also prior to the Patco strike, it was an unwritten law, you know, an unwritten, you know, kind of guideline everybody followed that workers are on strike. You didn't, you know, fire them and go hire scabs you know, replacements. You know, which we call scabs. Um, now, as soon as the federal government comes in and says, fuck them workers. You know, we're, we're going to fire them and we're going to bar them. They're federal workers and they're not only going to get fired. When they were fired, they were barred from ever working for the federal government again. Wow. So they were fired and now had to go find a new career. So once the federal government says, yeah, you can go ahead and shit on the workers if they're on strike, then it was open season for the corporations. The government's not going to stop us. They're literally doing it. They're setting the example. Do these international labor organizations have any teeth? I mean, can they take the U.S. government to court or anything like that for um, violations of labor standards or is it pretty much, you know, it's pretty much. I mean, not- the U.S. is pretty much just, you know, U.S. labor law, you know, which would be depending on, you know, whether you're a public sector, private sector, um, the airlines and the railroads are, are under the are under their own federal act that makes everything much more complicated and a pain in the ass and harder to organize on purpose. Um. Not an accident that, you know, there are 13 craft unions that make up the railroad. So, you know, the engineers are in their own union that has, you know, different interests than the conductor, than the mechanic. So it sounds like you're, you're in opposition to the, the craft unions. What's the other type of union called? Um, well, see, a craft union would only represent one. Yeah. Um, something like the IWW strives to be one big union. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Um, so that way you'd have solidarity across 
you know, not only job sites, um, different work fields, you know, we public and private sector, which leads into say solidarity strikes. What about, yeah, so what about like solidarity? I, we wanted to talk about, at least I wanted to talk about a little bit in our brief call. What about some of the shortcomings of unions? And of course they're gonna fight for their constituents and people in the union. And also, you know, the, the standards and the benefits and the wages go up for everyone. You know, when, when, when a union wins, everyone wins. The, even the non-union workers and even the, maybe the factory across town because that other factory that, you know, increased wages the other company's got to, or factory's got to compete with it. So, you know, it's going to raise wages for everyone across the board. Ah, but what about across the, the board? And also, you know, not only do they have to raise wages or, you know, give a little, give a little nudge to the benefits, you know, to compete, but also because guaranteed that worker doesn't want the union organizers to come over to his factory. Up and stuff, sure. But what about the shortcomings? You know, he wants to give you a couple pizza parties now. <laughs> um, yeah. We're coming. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, there are many different types of unions. And as we brought up, you know, a number, um, number of unions have been around for a while. Either, you know, they might be mainly made up of, you know, older workers that are all getting close to retirement. So, you know, their interests in what's going on, workplace conditions, a little bit different than, you know, somebody who's got six, 10 years in, or somebody's got two years in. Um, if you have, you know, you'd prefer rank and file, one worker, one vote, um, bottom up organized unions. Um, however, we do still have a number of managerial style unions where you have a small group at the top now, you know, not saying anything's an absolute. You can have some really militant rank and file people in position at that managerial union, and they could be doing really good stuff. And then, you know, so just not my, you know, wouldn't be my preferred style, but that doesn't mean, you know, just because it's set up that way, it's 100%, you know, ineffective. Um, unfortunately, you know, in that managerial style, you know, you have a hierarchy there, you know, where these people may end up, you know, agreeing with the corporation against the interest of the workers, or, you know, they may, more so in the past, uh, let's say, oh, we are talking about Reagan. Reagan, before president, before governor, was actually the SAG actor after a president out in Hollywood. And while he was president, um, we'll say, allegedly, he, you know, set up, he was represented by MCA, and at the time, you know, People who represented talent couldn't be like running a studio, hiring talent, conflict of interest. Reagan took some, allegedly took some funds to uh, 
change that so MCA could have a sweetheart deal. And of course, Reagan and ended up with TV deals and was on TV in front of the public, you know, out of it as well. I think he got, you know, cushy salary and was investigated. But I say allegedly because I do not recall how much proof they had, <laughs> even though I'm 100% sure, um, you know, Ronnie did it. Right afterwards, when he got pushback over using his office for personal gain, no, a for gain of his buddies, yeah. that was right when he switched from being a Democrat to a Republican and hated unions after that. <laughs> what do you mean I can't use it for my own? You know, enrichment. <laughs> of course, he went on the campaign trail and told everybody, you know, he loved unions and he was a union president for years, you know, because that was the image he wanted to give. Um, so, you know, you have, I don't know of anybody, you know, right now doing anything like that. Um, but that is a structural. Now, possibility if you have, if you set a small group of people up above the rest of the workers. Yeah, I think and, you know, they are just comfy sitting above there. Uh, that, that destroys class solidarity. If, you know, I think, it, do you consider yourself part of the capitalist class, the management class? It or creates you all sort of conflicts of interest. You know, sure. like the corporation can threaten their position, you know, to get them to do something that's not in the workers' interest. And that's, I think that's what they want to, you know, harmony, common good. Like to create any way they can create division, they're going to do it. Sure. Give them an opening, they're going to take it. They're going to drive a wedge in there. What what the, the janitor might want, you know, the harmony, the common good stuff, like, you know, we're all in it together. It's ridiculous. That's just to kind of break up. Uh, class consciousness. The business class is highly con- class conscious, and they're very good at the one-sided class war. The only time it's a problem is when workers actually, you know, fight back to try to get what they deserve. Um, but well, I think, to you know, be fair, it's only class war if we're fighting back. Yep, yep, that's right. That's because that's the way. Generally, the it's pretty one-sided. Very it's one-sided. generally them beating on us. Yep, yep, and I think. Uh, the United States is the most managerial society with lo- more layers of management and hierarchy than any other society. I think it's like almost two to one or something like that. I've seen some study on it, but uh, management in general. And the majority of it is useless. They are extra layers just right. thrown in there to muddy the waters and to put somebody in between you and them. So you'd be pissed off at the manager right. instead of the person actually responsible for this scenario. And it's highly, there's always this talk about productivity and efficiency, but having layers of highly paid managers that contribute nothing to production has absolutely nothing to do with productivity. It's just what you're saying, kind of put an extra layer there of division um, between working class people and, um, you know, the top, the capitalist class, the ownership class. Yeah, a lot of these managers, are, especially nowadays, are just managers in name alone. Yeah. Like, there are people who didn't even get you know, much of a pay bump or anything. There's, you know, just yep. put their name on the title. Yep. It changed the job title and that was it. That's it. Yeah. Make what? somebody feel better, you know, try to, you know, it's the same thing as a fucking pizza party at that point. <laughs> what 
They try to have just rungs for us to climb up the ladder, you know, to distract us. Like, oh, if I climb two more rungs on this ladder, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to have the stability I want and the salary I want, you know, to just keep you distracted with that carrot in front and to just, you know, if I if I can get the regional manager, I'm really going to be somewhere. My, my parents are going to be proud of me or something silly, you know, that kind of nonsense. Um, I want to get to this, though, the shortcomings of, of unions and, and labor. If, if if they were fighting for Medicare for all or maybe student loan forgiveness or uh, Medicare for all, Social Security expansion, um, you know, solidarity type programs that benefit everyone in, th- in the society and not just the constituency. Um, you know, I, I wish, I guess, unions would take more of a role with these um, bigger vision programs. I mean, I, of course, it's an uphill battle okay. and you got to pick your battles. Um, but First what about- thing I would have to say is. You have to build the base to have a say about something in that issue. I mean, if you want the unions to do something, like we we have to build the labor market, your labor movement back up, and we have to increase the numbers so that when they come out, when, you know, this union comes out and these other unions come in in solidarity, like, you have to have enough people in order to create leverage or they're just going to laugh at you. I mean, regardless, you know, any union just makes a statement, say, tomorrow morning, you know, hey, fuckers, give us Medicare for all. The politicians are just going to laugh. Like, you, you're going to have to push them. You're going to have to force them. Yeah, they're never... Absolutely, I want all these issues straightened out. But like, like, there's a process to um, anything you're doing. And unfortunately, like, we have to fight all these battles at the same time. You know, we don't have the luxury of only fighting this battle or that battle. Like, unfortunately, we're going to have to fight them all at the same time in order to make any progress. Yeah, I mean, we got to organize with others. Together, we can do nothing. We're going to be crushed by concentrated wealth and power. The we only have way to is focus to focus on what we have in common, not on our differences. Yep. Because um, we even, any way you look at it, you know, you go to work, you don't agree with everybody, you know, at your job site or workplace. Um, you don't all agree on music choices movies, books to read. Um, So, of course, you know, you're not all going to agree, you know, on, say, political theory or um, maybe even strategy. Um, You're not going to get anywhere, like, if you hit, like, one stumbling block and you just turn around and give up or say, oh, well, we don't. Him and I don't agree on that. Well, we agree on all these other things. Like, we may not agree on this, but we share a class interest. Right. And I think that's what the ruling class wants to do, though, is to you know, divert our attention to distract us. And they use tactics like the cultural war, identity politics, sexuality. Uh, and really, we're all in this together. And I think uh, they, they want a divided left. It's a lot easier to win a, a one-sided class war when the left is all divided. But if we would all come together with class consciousness and understand that we're all different and we all 
you know, have different belief systems and different values. And that's a good thing. I think the worst thing in the world would be a society where everyone thought and did the same things, you know, without any diversity. Um, but if we could all just come together in, in, hopefully rally around a working class movement. Because I think a lot of times that's why the left fails is some of these leftist movements fails to connect with working class America. And I know America in the political system here because I live here. But like, for example, Trump and, and demagogues on the right are able to tap into working class strife and, and uh, you know, um, discontent. And Trump rode a wave of working class voters, you know, working class Americans in the Midwest and definitely in the South into the White House. Uh, and, and it was easy for, for Trump to do uh, and, and had some good that's rhetoric. Fake populist method. Fake populism. That's right. You can that's you right. tap fake into populism. the fact that people are frustrated. Very frustrated. You know, with their conditions, not only in the workplace, they're frustrated with conditions, you know, how far their, their dollars going for you know, rent, utilities, you know, inflation, you know, they're tapping into everybody having a frustration with the government. But since there is no really political education or no, you know, critical thinking skills really being taught in the schools, you know, you can point to some, you know, you point to something that people are angry about. But then so they don't have a way of gauging the answer you've given them said when you when they point and say, well, it's, this is the fault. Yeah, fake. Uh, so the, the Trump and the fake populism, uh, he's capitalizing on mis misdirected anger of the working class. And when he gets in the office, you know, his policies, uh, obviously the Trump, I think he was just a figurehead, you know, the, the Trump administration, which was probably very similar to. Uh, well, it's just sad thing is, you know, like he's, you know, calls Washington the swamp, which it is, and acts like he is separate from it. Right. When um, Washington is run by the fucking corporations and their lobbyists. So for a fucking pretend billionaire <laughs> to act like he's not a part of right. Wall Street and corporate America. Yeah. That was quite a sell job. Uh, it was. But I guess if you pretend to be a billionaire on TV for 10 years, that's the easiest way to pretend to be a president for four years. Yeah, I mean, the, the elections are pretty much a public uh, relations display, the quadrennial extravaganza. You're, you're pulling a lever for one of two horrible candidates. They're not really telling you what they're running on. And the media tries to distract us with personality um, traits and character flaws and what outfit someone's wearing to the debate. And it's all ridiculous. They they want to make sure that we never talk about the important issues. And some of the, the military-industrial complex and the constant wars that we're fighting is just a distraction um, from all the problems at home. They want to distract us with a war and an enemy so that we rally around the flag in a jingoist hysteria uh, with patriotism and the red, white, and blue, all while, you know, hundreds of thousands of homeless people are in the American cities every single day. Our inner cities and urban areas in the United States are now closely resembling third world cities and third world countries. Um, food scarcity, hunger, uh, a lack of a health care system. 
the most expensive healthcare system in the world with some of the worst outcomes. Um, they want to make sure that they misdirect our anger and dissent at, um, you know, uh, a far off land or a country that, you know, co- most people couldn't even pick uh, off a map because of how horrible some of the American education system is. Um, and, and again, to make sure that we don't focus on the major problems at home, which are many, you know, and there's no shortage of idle hands. Just look around any community in America. There's plenty of work to do, but the fact that, you know, we have to have some level of unemployment so that workers can't, you know, get that leverage. The one, uh, secret about the capitalist system, it's not even very good at putting, um, people to work. There's millions of people uh, around the globe that are out of work that, and there's no shortage of, you know, again, jobs that need to be done, especially this environmental crisis that we are um, facing. Uh, and you had mentioned the, the new deal earlier. And again, one of the issues I'm in agreement, one of the issues that the, the mildly reformist new deals, one of its problems was it didn't go far enough. But the green new deal is interesting to me. I dig the green new deal. I think we could, um, you know, have the, have the government and, and a jobs program directed to transforming our economy to get us off of oil and fossil fuels and, and to more renewable energies and more public transportation. You had mentioned Coca-Cola and what corporations do is try to shift the burden away from them onto consumers. And you had mentioned recycling too, I believe. Uh, if you didn't, I just wrote down, I think something like 60% of things that are marketed as recycling just go into a landfill anyways. It's like less than half, I think, are even recycled. It's ludicrous. It's just a marketing campaign, recycling. I mean, not, not that's that not the only burden, you know, since the late 70s to the 80s, you know, the tax burden has completely shifted down, you know, down into the working class. You know, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, your higher income individuals and corporations were taxed at 70 some percent. So at a certain point, 70 some percent, you know, after you made a certain point, 70 some percent was going to the federal government. Now, once you got to a certain point in the 80s, that's flat down to like 20 percent. But yet, you know, all the government programs continue to go. Where's that come from? If it's not being paid by corporate America and by higher earners, they all go all goes further down. And then on top of that, you know, they work sweetheart deals. Amazon does when it comes into a state. Nepotism. You know, they'll they'll work, they'll work a state against another state. You know, hey, what what kind of tax breaks are you going to give me? So they'll get it to the point where they're not paying any state taxes. They're not paying any federal taxes. They're probably getting a federal subsidy. And, and yeah, well, that's that's the federal government. Like, there's that. That's what the right wants to do is to direct our anger at the government. Government is bad. Not don't look at the um, military industrial complex, which has a budget now equal to almost equal to, I guess, the the rest of the world combined, or the constant wars that we're facing, or the prison industrial complex and the uh, and 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 mass incarceration. It's another and, partial sleight of hand, right? You know, Don't, yeah, um, the government, the is, government bad. is the tool in the hands of the ruling class That's that it. they use to, you know, keep their class interests. 
So they're saying, hey, look, they're telling you that the tool is the actual master. That you're not paying attention, you know, man behind the curtain, the person actually holding the tool. You know, just like they'd love to bring up some, you know, culture war issue, because if you're you're doing a culture war issue or if you're buying into picking a side in, you know, politics, because it's just team politics. You're just picking a side. If you're buying into that, then you're arguing with the people on the other side instead of, you know, about anything actually important about any issues. You know, something's actually going on in the community or really at any level, community, state or federal, because you're busy arguing about who's on a Bud Light can or whatnot. Exactly. Exactly. What about um? what about the police? I've had some debates with people on Twitter. Abolish. Abolish them? Abolish. Yeah, I definitely think You cannot reform a system that corrupt. It was started. They were started as slave catchers, slave patrols, and indigenous patrols, and as a unit, you know, a strike-breaking unit in the cities. You know, so... their purpose has always been to protect the capitalist class interests, to protect private property, and has always been to oppress. To preserve disorder. To preserve the disorder for the ruling class. I'm definitely down with defund the police. I, I like the idea long term of abolishing the police. I think it should be ultimately, I'm, a, I'm an anarchist, uh, but ultimately I believe in democracy. So whatever the community decides, I think we should have a vote. Uh, do we want police? Do we want community policing? And if the community says no, We're talking about I'm things down. that are happening right now, there are three communities. Top you know, cities. Off the top of my head, I remember um, in Colorado, I believe the program in Denver is called Stars, where when people call nine one one, there are trained EMTs. I love that. Yeah, and there are mental health professionals connected in exactly social workers connected in with 911. So when these calls come in for a mental health issue or some going on a homeless encampment, they get the call, not an armed officer. Yes. They're not immediately escalating. Immediately you will hear pushback from certain circles. You know, like, Oh, well, your mental health officer is just going to get beat up by this hypothetical, you know, eight foot two crazy person, <laughs> which, you know, it's a straw man. Yeah. You know, people facing mental health issues like, you know, normal isn't a real thing. That's a whole different rabbit hole. <laughs> you know, you know, we're all a little off. But anyway. That's a good thing. You know, that's a straw man. It's a good thing. We're all a little off. Of course off. it is. Yeah. Of course it is. You know, as they've done this in these three communities, the amount of, you know, violence that the social workers and EMTs have encountered has been next to nothing. I don't remember what the percentage is. It's next to nothing. And actually, when you go and talk to the police officers, like, they don't want to go deal with, you know, homeless issues. They don't want to go deal with, you know, mental health issues. So if you, you know, you can actually go, if you explain it 
like that, you can you can have a conversation with a police officer about it, and they will be completely for, you know, what defunding the police is all about. Is not for the slogan. They've taken stuff off your plate. Is the way they look at it. You know, we look at it is, you know, the majority of situations do not require an armed response. No. And armed response is likely to escalate. Yep. And that's, you know, that's before we get into any structural issues, you know, with policing or criminal justice in the U.S. And the and crime rates have been relatively stable over the decades. However, perception of crime has been on the rise. People think that there's, you know, crime everywhere and, and uh, we need, you know, I guess Biden's well, out another 100,000 Right-wing news outlets cherry-pick, yeah. you know, certain stats. They use fear. Which, you know, exactly, to create fear. Right. Um, you know, like right now, they're still claiming that, um, you know, one or more cities were burned down in 2020. Now, when I push them on this and ask them which city was burned down, <laughs> I don't know. They say, well, look at your know, crimes on the rise, which the only crime on the rise is, you know, police Wage shootings, theft. which they like to call officer involved shootings. Oh, yeah, wage theft wage is theft. always on the rise. Always that dwarfs rise. every other type of theft. It's not even close. Um, but no, they'll say, oh, well, crime's on the rise, which it isn't. And they'll say the reason it's on the rise is because we defunded all these police departments. Well, go back and look. None of them were defunded. I don't think, yeah. I think there was a I, little yeah. bit of effort, a little bit of gains made in Minneapolis. And it got rolled back. Yeah. Or say LA initially claimed, you know, that they were slashing the budget. And then, you know, several months later, the LA PD budget gets a boost. It's right back up to the same level or higher than it was before. Matter of fact, damn near 100% of police departments have received increased funding. Since 2020, well, that's part of that's Biden's agenda. Funded, it's been the opposite. That's the Biden agenda. I mean, that's that's why we have we have two ruling class capitalist business based parties. The only difference is shifting interests. Duopoly. That's right. That's right. So I and I, I like co ops. I think they're better than you know traditional corporations. There's a lot of statistics that say that they are. Uh, in a five-year span, they're more likely to be around than the traditional corporate hierarchy. Um, but, you know, again, there's problems with, you know, co-ops and stuff. But one thing we had mentioned and I kind of wanted to get back to, like Mondragon has to has to be, you know, for-profit. It has to be competitive. Uh, but part of what it did is diversify um, education, insurance, production, um, and part of, I guess, like the banking system and, and the loans because – um, you know, they have trouble getting traditional, you know, loans and funding. Uh, and part of what the capitalists want to do is to buy out uh, any successful, you know, co-op to ensure that it, there's not a good example of it, you know, for other generations of workers in an attempt of, you know, class consciousness. So uh, the, su- the successful uh, co-ops, co-ops, if you build something in your community, community, community organizer wise, you get a good community gardens going. 
first thing's going to happen. The city or state's going to come in and offer you resources to come help, and then they'll take it over. They'll come right in, swoop that, and then it'll be just like the inefficient programs that you created the thing, you know, to avoid. That's, so, that's kind of what you the were right getting ones. at. You create something that's good for the workers, and they're going to they're going to try to come in and swap it from you. But like, I want to talk about, I guess, the the right and their um, their tactics. They like to they like to talk about fiscal responsibility, but only when maybe a Democrat's in power. And we know that you know, there's not much difference between the two parties. But they only they're only deficit hawks when the Democrats are in power. When they, uh, the right or the Republicans, whatever, are in power, they run up the deficit. They slash taxes on the rich, run up the deficit, increase the military budget, and then try to use it as a weapon to cut social spending like Medicare and Social Security. And what they want to do is to make these programs to defund them, to make them so inefficient and difficult to manage that people clamor for change. You know, they, they want to make these programs look bad. They want to decrease their funding. And, and even though like um, Medicare, for example, and the administration costs are a fraction of the insanely high management costs that um, private insurance uh, agencies have with mil- or with with uh, CEOs making millions of dollars and then layers and layers and layers of um, high level management, highly paid management. Uh, of course, these ridiculous. You know, you got to call in uh, for my insurance plan to you know find out some information. You're sitting on call on hold, uh, toggling through a menu. I mean, just incredibly, insanely inefficient. Uh, not at all. Like, I don't think, I, I don't know anyone that says, oh, I love my health care plan. I think the. It's uh, a for profit system from start to finish. You know, everything about it. Um, all you have to do is look at, um, you know, I remember in 2020 seeing that, you know, like in the, say, the 60s or 70s, when the hospitals were built and designed, like, it, it was standard procedure. They had to have enough beds for some sort of epidemic or pandemic like this. When they were building the hospital, they made sure they had all these extra beds for that purpose. And over the years, that got phased out. And where the focus went is to the elective surgery wing. And the specialists, the highly paid specialists. And, um, yeah, I mean... The uh, the COVID, you know, these hospitals have to run a tight ship just like any other corporation. Even if they're nonprofit, they still have to compete within a for-profit healthcare system. And, yeah, you have to just always be right on. It's unable to, I guess, manage even small fluctuations in demand so that we are left insanely vulnerable with a natural disaster or a global pandemic because we want these um, hospitals and and um, you know, healthcare centers to be managing, um, you know, on, on par, uh, you know, f- f- staff perfectly. Like we don't want empty beds. We want just enough beds, but whenever there's a disaster or a, 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 a an emergency or a pandemic, then they're over, <laughs> over, they're, they're, yeah, they're burdened and they don't have enough resources. Well, this is the constant problem with the for-profit motive. Yes is that you have to prepare for disasters. Preparing usually involves research, development, steps taken, investment. They don't want to do any of that. So then we run it, so then they don't do it. 
And then when we run into a problem, it turns catastrophic in a hurry. You live in Texas. What was that three years ago? Was it the freeze? Yeah, the infrastructure. And then you turned on Fox News and Fox News is like, oh, look at Texas. Look at this horrible green energy. Look at the windmills that don't work. And I'm up here in South Dakota. We have shit ton of windmills that work in below zero weather. So I'm like, what what the fuck are you talking about? These windmills don't work <laughs> yeah. in weather. Yeah. Key difference, the windmills in Texas were not winterized. Oh, okay. Because that would cost money. So we cut that corner. Just like uh, if I'm remembering right, the 60% of Texas's grid that's natural gas, also not winterized. Because mm-hmm. that would cost money. That's right. So, you, you know, you have this risk assessment type report where you go, oh, well, a catastrophic freeze is only this percentage. Yeah, very unlikely. Yeah, these risks are institutionalized. These are externalities like the environment. They take so, these risks. Uh, yeah. um, just, okay. New Orleans. New Orleans with Katrina. The Army Corps of Engineers warned the politicians for years that the levees were decrepit, that they were not up to snuff, that if a Category 5 showed up, it was done. And the politicians went, well, but what's the likelihood of that? What's the percentage likelihood that that's going to happen? So the levees never get properly maintained, built back up, and then what happens? The Category 5 hurricane named Katrina shows up. And the politicians aren't the one left out in the cold. Right. It's when the this neighborhoods. Happens. Yeah, it's the lower yeah. class neighborhoods, it, right? It, yes, it's the working class and poor people who are losing their houses, families, you know, they're losing livelihood, everything. What's what's some challenges and maybe some tactics? Um, and is it illegal? So what's what's kind of the legality of organization, or working class organizing, and maybe organizing in maybe a maybe the differences between um, you know like a, a Republican state and a Democrat state? Um, you no, know, it's it, not so much Republican or Democrat. Um, like the big difference would be, you know, say a free bargaining state and a right to work. What's the difference? Let's talk about the that. Other, the, the other thing they like to call it a at-will employment state is what, you know, South Dakota likes to call it. But either right-to-work or at-will laws are in place in like 27 states right now. Um, and they are, their only purpose is to attack collective bargaining. Um, so... You know, the right to work laws were designed directly to attack the union's, you know, resources. You know, they um, will say, hey, well, we're standing up for the worker who wants to come work in this factory, but may not want to pay union dues. So in this scenario, this hypothetical worker would like to come work in this job. We're apparently supposed to allow it this hypothetical worker to have a say in how the jobs run and the relationship between you know the boss and the workers before he starts. Yeah. Which is which is crazy to me. But on top of that, this hypothetical worker gets all the benefits that the union fought for. 
but doesn't have to pitch in. So then what happens is not only this is division, you've now got union and non-union workers in the same workplace. So you've created a division. And then eventually, since the union doesn't have resources, when they go to fight, they have smaller resources to do anything about it. So then they're less efficient. And, you know, it just keeps playing on each other. The less efficient they are, the less they can do, the weaker they get, members leave, go to different jobs. Um, nowadays, you know, like South Dakota likes to call it an at-will state, um, which I laugh at even more. Because um, they'll always sell these in some sort of terminology that's supposed to be about workers' rights. But think about it. It's an absurdity. You know, yeah, if, we're, if, we're, if we're talking about a power dynamic between in the workplace between a boss and a number of employees, um, if there's, you know, in that will state, you know, there's, there's no contract between you and the employer. He can fire you at any time for anything he wants. For pretty much any reason. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You have no guarantees that you can have a job. For the rest of the day, the end of the day, the end of the week, there's no protections, nothing. Um, that's what that contract gives you. It says we we have an agreement between this employer and ourselves that says he is going to do this for us. We are going to get this. Now, don't get me wrong. Nothing's perfect. As soon as the ink dries on that contract, you know, um, you know, GM Ford or whatnot is going to be trying to break it and try to fuck with it. You know, anything you let them get away with, they will. So, you know, you still got to push them on it. Um, when at will state, like I said, there's no agreement between you and the worker, between you and the boss. You know, and in that scenario, the boss just gets to do whatever, whatever he wants. And the worker has absolutely zero leverage. In a scenario, what role you're obviously very well read on labor history in general. What role does education play in uh, you know the working class movement and the solidarity movement and just this class war, this one sided class war? What role does education um, play, and and how can we? This is what I'm trying to do. How can we spread the message? Plays a major role, um, you know, because the education we're giving, we're giving. You know, public school system and whatnot. We'll just go with that. You know, the history you're told, you know, before even getting into specifics on certain topics, just history in general, you know, is whitewashed and is generally, you know, American exceptionalism, you know, more closer to mythology than any, you know, sort of historical story. Um, so when, when running into that, you know, anything you try to do, any sort of organizing, like you end up communication plays a role in that. Um, when you're talking about collective action, not just in labor, but in the community, um, the history is absolutely, you know, um, I don't want to say withheld from us, you know, there's None of that's being taught in school. And if it is taught in school, it's taught in you in a way that says, well, in the past, protests were very peaceful. 
So I don't know why you're raising your voice right now at us. Don't you remember those other strikes? They were peaceful. No, they weren't. Any strike for civil rights, voting rights, labor rights, you know, as they're, it's they're always won. been a confrontation. They're one. They're not gifts from above. They're one from no. hard fought. Oh, they are one. They, every every single right we've had, we have had to go out and fight. We've had, you know, nothing has been given to us. Nothing has been, you know, even gotten through the voting box. And it won't. Everything be given to was us. gotten by people going to, by people gathering together, going out in the street and fighting for it. The suffrage movement, women's rights. Women had to go out in the street for that. And at the time, the newspapers were were writing the same type of BS that they would write nowadays. Like, they're not protesting the right way. These women, I heard these women using sailor language outside on the sidewalk. I heard several swear words. This is not proper. You know, the tone police was going on even then. But the suffrage movement for women to get their voting rights, you know, be it. Like I said, 40 to 50 million had to come together and show their solidarity in order to get the eight-hour work work day, the weekend uh, child labor laws, um, to get Social Security, Medicaid, that federal jobs program. You know, even when it came to civil rights, you know, in civil rights era, again, in school, they'll try to act like, oh, that was all peaceful. I don't know why you guys are so growly now. Everything was, no, it was not. When people went out and protested for their civil rights, the cops were out there busting heads in just like they are now. But they will tell you that this is a tactic to tell you that, well, past labor unrest or past civil rights unrest was peaceful that way they can scold you and tell you you're not doing it right the way you're doing it but i think you know some of it's defensive like the violence was from the ruling class and if there's labor violence it was in defense for the most part outside of maybe some provocateurs or maybe people that were a part of the movement but didn't have their priorities in line you know i think you have to expect violence uh, because the ruling class is not going to give up their power willingly. No, I would never instigate somebody, you know, to go out and commit, you know, random acts of adventurism. Because it doesn't. Um, first off, it's not going to make the movement look good. If we want to no. change people's opinions to go out and commit random acts of violence, we're not going to. It gives them an easy narrative. Easy narrative. That's right. To drive on you. Look. Look at the. You know, you brought up earlier George Floyd protests and outside agitators coming in. That's right. You know, all it takes is somebody to come break a window, and then that window or that cop car on fire is all you're seeing on the news. That's right. You know, and they'll tell somebody the whole city is on fire. I know, I know. When it was just one window and one cop car. Where did you get your education? You're very well read on labor history. Uh, where did you get your political lot education? On my own. Um, Were you radicalized? What radicalized you? How did your political beliefs change over time? We got about eight or nine minutes. Let's finish this up. Uh, finish this up strong. Um, I'm curious. I guess it was kind of a long process. Um, I'm the type where if I'm interested in something, I'll go ahead and dig into it and go ahead and do a bunch of my own 
research, you know, um, dating myself when I was a young and, you know, that meant going to the library and getting six, 10 books and taking them home and going through them on whatever the subject was. Um, you have any favorite authors? You know, I'm definitely going to say, uh, no, just. I'm pretty anti putting people on pedestals. Um, we're all infallible meat bags. We're all fallible meat bags, rather. <laughs> how eloquent. So, yeah, we are. Um, regardless of how much I like, you know, this writer or that writer, you know, it's important not to be dogmatic about it. Yeah. Um, you know, you can you can take something from here and something from there, but, yep. you know, this other piece, this doesn't apply to your scenario. I think especially with uh, political theory, Definitely. people get stuck into that where everyone draws into their own camps and they're arguing about this or that or whatever. And, you know, yeah. you're, you end up arguing online about some particular or something that happened in a country 40 years ago that really has no basis on <laughs> your material conditions oh, yeah. right now. Yeah. So now you guys are now at loggerheads over this yeah. when, you know, it's all wasted energy. You We're on the same side. The probably. community doing yeah. a food drive or oh, yeah. growing some crops. Oh, yeah, brother. Yeah, that's why I never, I never, I like Marx and I think he's said a lot of good stuff, but I never would say, you know, I'm a Chomskyan. I never would say I'm a Marxist. Uh, even Marx would be highly against I think um, so too. doctrinarian type of thinking. Yeah, I think so um, too. Not only because, you know, when you look at Marx, there was definitely, there's an early, a mid, and a yep. late Marx yeah. periods in what definitely. he writes. And you can see the growth, which makes Human sense. Human beings, you know? yeah, we all grow. We take in new information yeah. and we change our hypothesis, come up with a new working theory. Yeah. Um, but also, in addition to that, um, you know, Marx also did say, you know, that we can look at, you know, past um, historical movements and, you know, we we don't look at them as blueprints and try to apply what was done, you know, in a previous decade in a different country under completely different conditions to what you're trying to do now. Like, that would be utter lunacy. Um, so you certainly, regardless of whether, you know, you want to be Marxist, you talk about Marxist work or anybody, you know, you don't take any work and try to word for word apply it to what you're doing. Yeah. You know, you take, you critique it, same as, you know, I would critique modern works, uh, praxis going on now, or to be honest, same as I critique myself to make sure, you know, that I'm doing right. I think that's what you get in the soft sciences, the humanities, the histories. There's not right or wrong answers. People can have theories. You're never going to go in, into physics or whatever, um, you know, cosmology and be like, you know, I'm an Einsteinian, you know, because there's a lot of stuff Einstein got right. And there's a lot of stuff you can look into and say, oh, it was, it was wrong here. I mean, 50 years of physics, you would hope, uh, you know, someone didn't get it right. Um, or there wouldn't be much of a field there, you know, and, uh, the universe is so complicated. So, you know, I think, I think you have to have that well, curiosity the, uh, and dare to be wrong. What you lose when you try to tell history with this great man, of history framework Yeah, is that 
you know, the entirety of society isn't just sitting around waiting for one person to show up and invent a light bulb or something. That's not how anything happens. You know, uh, any sort of advancement, whether it be technological advancement, any sort of sociological advancement, isn't linear for one. You know, there are starts and stops, and you fail to learn, and you fail to learn how to succeed. So without those several other people not quite getting it, you know, the, you know, the third, fourth person in line couldn't have come along and been the one to actually get it. Like he needed those other experiments and what was learned in order to do that. But then after the fact, we want to write it as, oh, this person just created it out of thin air. We, We learn from mistakes. We probably in some instances, learn more from mistakes than we do of getting it right. You know, we do. Yeah. hundred percent. We got about three minutes to go. Um, this was, uh, the completely most unstructured podcast I've ever done, but you're so knowledgeable. I just want to let you roll with it. Um, go ahead and tell everyone where they can find you. And maybe you can tell a little bit about your background or how you, uh, or help workplaces organize. We got about three minutes here. The stage is yours huh. and then we'll, then we'll wrap it up for tonight. Well, you can usually find me on uh, the socials, be it you find me on uh, Twitter, uh, slash X or Blue Sky, you know, under Nate Went. Um, that's N A T E W N D T. Other than that, um, I'll put a look, said right out the bat, you know, labor and community organizing. Um, unfortunately, right now, while I'm doing a cancer battle, I have touch and go how much I can do out in my community. Depends on how much energy I have. So a lot of it's more in the labor. And with that, you know, I am a volunteer, you know, organizer. I'm on the digital and communication teams with EWOC, which stands for the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. Just started up in 2020, so it's brand new. Three years old. We have three now as of this year staffers everybody else is all a worker volunteer and ewok's purpose is to help people organize their workplace whether that be do they need some education do they need someone to come in and help them set up an independent union um you know maybe they're you know somebody from starbucks calls us up we're gonna instead we're gonna transfer you over to you know, Starbucks Workers United, that'd be the best place for you. If, if you think the best thing for you would be to start up the independent union, then we'll go ahead and help you do that. Um, we also do organizer training, both online and in person. Um, I'll say quick, like, I know you say we got three minutes. I don't know what that was, but. You got a minute and 20 seconds. Ah, okay. Um, but he walks open to any worker in any workplace. You know, they can hit us up on the socials or easy to remember. The website is workerorganizing.org. And any worker can go to workerorganizing.org slash support, and they can fill out the form there. And within 48 hours, somebody from Ewok's intake team will get back to them with one-on-one help for whatever they're looking to for their, you know, workplace grievances. 
I'm gonna tweet yeah, you yeah, out yeah. on the podcast. Uh, I'll, I'll put your Twitter handle on there. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up here. We got less than 20 seconds. Uh, Nate, we're gonna have to do this again sometime. I appreciate your wealth of knowledge. I learned so much tonight. Uh, I had a lot of questions, didn't get to many of them. Uh, I just wanted to kind of listen to you talk and, and analyze the world. And uh, again, I learned it's so much. It's such a deep topic. I don't think I, we I, barely I touched on barely so touched many on. things. We we'll have to do it again, hours my friend. Hours. Have a good night. We'll do yes. it again. Solidarity forever. Solidarity, my brother. Adios. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Nate Went, working class activist and labor and community organizer. We talked about class struggle and labor history, and unfortunately, we barely even scratched the surface tonight. I learned so much. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out. (laughs) 